My name is Rich Baker, and this is Living the Dream. Yes, what do you do when you're 100% responsible for results? I speak with a rare few who make their living in the world of arts and entertainment. It's not unlike Goodfellas, <laughs> you know? Big thank you to Phil Ranta and the Comedy Podcast Network. When I was growing up, I wanted to be everything from an environmental lawyer to a pastor. Original music by Diana Lawrence, artwork by Tom Burns. He'll make your Paris Louvre la shake for it. <laughs> <laughs> Email me your questions, your suggestions, whatever you want. Livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com. And the uh, the title of the review would be Lilith Unfair. Ayo. Rate the show in iTunes. Give me a review. Become a fan of Facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast. Helps me out a lot. <laughs> so I came out to Chicago and had this epiphany of like, wow, look at, look at what's possible. And so I was hooked. This is episode number 36, CEO of Comedy Sports Chicago. Matt Elwell. Living the dream, my name is Rich, and I have with me CEO of Comedy Sports Chicago, Matt Elwell. Matt, thank you for coming on the show. Sure. <laughs> uh, we're coming to you live from Comedy Sports Chicago, and so if you hear any background noise, there's an actual workshop going on right now. So, Or is it a show? We're rehearsing for One World, One Stage as part of the Chicago Improv Festival. So we actually have improvisers from all over the world and Canada in that uh, in that <laughs> theater right now. I love it. So uh, we're surrounded by improv as we do this interview. So uh, Matt Elwell, um, you're CEO of Comedy Sports, meaning that you work in entertainment, but you're behind the scenes. You And you're not just a director. Um, a lot of people, I think, would think that, oh, he directs the ensemble, which isn't really what you do. Not anymore. Uh, the president-CEO role um, is kind of running the business and responsible for mission and vision and kind of the the more corporate side of comedy sports. Um, you know, our ensemble will always be the heart of comedy sports, and so that's a very important part of the business to me. Uh, but my my kind of my day-to-day is not as involved as the, in the ensemble as it was when I was artistic director. So let's take me back. You started, the way you got into this whole thing in the beginning was that you started out as an improviser. Well, yeah, and it's funny that you're here while we're hosting Chicago Improv Festival because in the second annual Chicago Improv Festival back in 1999 is when I, as an actor in the Philadelphia area, came out to Chicago to see what this whole improv thing was about. And I got bit by the bug, and two, a month later, actually, I had moved out here and started working at a Borders and uh, was living in some guy's uh, house, you know. <laughs> Just some guy. <laughs> he was so surprised. Excuse no, me, sir. <laughs> uh, it was really cool that the manager of the Borders that I had signed on to was like, well, if you need a place to stay, you can live with me and my wife and my, like, rabid German shepherd. So <laughs> I had a German, German shepherd was not a habit. I won him over eventually. But that was actually out in Oak Park. Um, but so I came to the city and I started taking classes at IO and the Annoyance and um, eventually Second City Conservatory. And, you know, so I did the whole circuit. And, you know, when I started, really the path to being an improviser was, you know, six, at least six nights a week, six days and nights a week. You were immersed in improv. You were either in a class or at a rehearsal or at a show. You know, even if you weren't in shows, you were you were soaking it up. That was the way to get on stage. Yeah, um, but you didn't do any improv in college or anything like that? <laughs> well, I will tell you, I was at the University of Delaware, and we did have an amateur theater group that I was very much a part of. Um, but And we, we experienced improv through uh, Keith Johnstone's book, Impro, and we had a group that was called What? Improvised Theater. Uh, and what, <laughs> like, question mark, improvised theater? Interrobang. What? Exclamation point, question mark. <laughs> 
also known as an interrobang. Oh, goody. So, uh, but <laughs> so we did that, and and but I had never seen long form. And what's funny is that I went then to the Hedgerow Theater, and being the person who did it in college and in random sports bars in the Newcastle, Delaware area. Uh, to get my start, um, I was the person who knew improv, so I actually ended up teaching improv classes for Hedgerow Theater, even though I had never seen long form. And in, in retrospect, I think, you know, to teach certain things, you have to have some kind of certification. And anyone in the country can say they're an improv teacher, and they don't have to know anything. Yeah. And and I was that guy. <laughs> so I came out to Chicago and had this epiphany of like, wow, look at look at what's possible. And so I was hooked. Wow. Did you know growing up that you wanted to be a, a performer of some kind? That more hit me in college. When I was growing up, I wanted to be everything from an environmental lawyer to a pastor. And so really, I went to college with the thought of becoming a Baptist minister. Interesting. And what made you sway from like, I want to be a Baptist minister to, nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a couple of things. One of which I got involved in a play called Inherit the Wind. Uh, and it kind of, kind of shook some of my beliefs. Uh, I would say that I've kind of just changed, um, I've changed flocks, as it were. Mm-hmm. That really, you know, uh, what I'm doing is, is for me, is kind of a ministry. I mean, I feel like when people are at the comedy sports show, um, you know, families are communicating more. People are experiencing joy and laughter and uh, screaming. And, and they're... <laughs> They're they're really screaming out there. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's the, it's you know it's the German team. <laughs> if they don't like you, they just annex you. Oh no, <laughs> probably not funny. I, I leave you. I leave you whether or not you want to keep that. In oh, I'll keep, I'm keeping that in. Oh, no. You will never that be time president. Matt made a Nazi joke. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I have to apologize. It did happen though. It did happen. It's true. Uh, so. Comedy sports, I feel like, so for people that don't know Chicago, because I do have some listeners outside of the city, uh, you know, comedy sports isn't what Chicago's known for. It's, people people know it as Second City's Town and I.O. What drew you to kind of the third runner-up? Well, um, and I would say at the time I started, comedy sports was the fourth runner-up to Annoyance. I see. Um, but I grew up in the East Coast and, and encountered comedy sports in Philadelphia. So I wasn't a part of it at all, but I had seen a comedy sports show as a, you know, when I was an improviser with what, and so I kind of knew what they were. Um, so it, it, it just felt, you know, what, what I was really attracted to was short form and the idea of a very audience-focused show. Because when I was, you know, as I said before, doing these awful, awful shows in like Newcastle, Delaware, where, you know, there was a Beatles cover band that would play and then we would be like between their sets, they would let us go up on their stage. And as long as we didn't knock over their equipment, we could do improv. You know, we did improv games. And the real thing about these improv games was we have to grab the audience's attention. And if we don't, it's, it's going to be a mess. So I learned early on that it was about the audience and about the audience's experience. And yeah. that's what carried me to comedy sports where it really was, you know. But yeah, and when you came to comedy sports, you were still doing other things at the time. Oh yeah, yeah, and we, you know, our players still play all over the city, and we love that because it's through that diversity that they become well-rounded improvisers. What uh, at, at some point did you say? Well, I got to kind of focus on one mm-hmm. thing. Well, I think um, I eventually, um, when I got the, the the president role, I was still teaching at Second City, and so when I knew I was going to be tapped to be the president CEO or you know take on whatever that role is, um, I resigned from the Second City faculty, um, and that was really hard for me actually uh, to to hand my resignation to Ann Lieber and and have to have that conversation because 
you know, it's a it's a hell of a thing to say. I'm ready to, to move on from Second City. I mean, yeah. you know, that's, you know, it's like, uh, it's, you know, I, I, part of the reason I moved out here was in uh, 1999 when I was at CIF, one of the last things we did as part of the CIF workshop series, this is back when CIF did a series of workshops that you could sign up for to kind of find out what improv is. Yeah. Um, one of the things that happened was Martin DeMott, uh, who's kind of the artistic director of Second City at the time, sat on the main stage and had this conversation. Uh, and he basically just sat and talked for like an hour to all of us about what improv is and what it really means. And uh, that changed my life. You know? And I don't know if I could actually tell you anything specifically he said, but there was, it's something about being in the presence of someone who has that, you know, that, that presence. And it just yeah. affected me. Do, do you still, like, do you have any idea of, like, do you want to, like, do straight theater anymore? Like, at some point, do you think, oh, you know what, I want to go back to doing plays or I want to perform? Because you, you really don't perform anymore now that you're the CEO. No, I mean, my performance is really more of, like, uh, teaching in our corporate training program. So, uh, yeah. you know, my, uh, I have a credential called a Certified Professional in Learning and Performance, and I use that to design learning experiences around improv for business soft skills and business development, talent development, all these kind of things. And uh, so my kind of, I get my performance on by doing keynotes and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But I, I do miss improv, and I keep, I keep threatening to go back on stage. <laughs> and and uh, I, I may do that. I, to answer your question about theater, I, I, I used to love Shakespeare. I used to love Williams, Albie. I love language. Um, I, I'm not very interested in, and I think the thing that drove me out of theater is when you're an amateur in theater, when you're an amateur theater, you do two weekends. You know, you do six performances tops. Yeah. When you're in professional theater, you know, like when I was in Christmas Carol as, as Ghost of Christmas Present and Fezziwig, otherwise known as the fat guy parts, uh, <laughs> when I was in those, it was like 30 performances, you know, in a month because it's, you know, it's the Christmas thing. And just there's a point in which I just couldn't, I couldn't enjoy that. You know, it was just such a job. There's something very uh, not in my DNA to say the same words again and again and again. And I know how actors talk about, well, you have to keep it fresh. You have to, you have to improvise it the whole time. And it's like, I, <laughs> I call shenanigans. Okay. Improv is improv. And, and when you're making it up, that's amazing and that's fresh. But when you're acting the same part for a month, you know, that, that is not, I'm not cut out for that is what I should say. There's a lot of people who are great at it. Sure. I, I clearly was not. So does, does it ever... Like, other than the corporate workshops, which you still do, yeah. like, is there a part of you that goes, ah, I kind of miss... Oh, absolutely. And, and and if there was, like, a, you know, I see, like, the Chicago Park District sometimes has plays. Like, if there was a chance to be, like, in an amateur production of Lear, you know, or in Henry V, I think I could do a mean uh, Exeter, you know. <laughs> He'll make your Paris Louvre shake for it. <laughs> that's, my, that's my Brian Blessed doing Exeter. I hope that guy's name was Exeter. It was either Exeter or Bedford. But uh, chances are most people aren't going to know. I should just said it like I knew it, right? That's all right. Um, but I, uh, the thing is, is, and I guess, you know, my background is English and philosophy in college. And one of the things I really wanted to make sure we did in, in the improv that I did was that we, we showed a love of language. Yeah. You know? Do, okay. Uh, what was the point where you went from, I have a part-time job and I do improv to I just do theater. Was it when you got the president's job? No, no. I um, so I signed on with Comedy Sports as a performer in August of two thousand. Uh -huh. 
and I was still managing a cafe downtown. It was called a Briaz Cafe. Mm. I became popular early because I would bring leftover baked goods to rehearsals. The best way to make it in the acting world. <laughs> I would bring cookies and muffins, and I was the cookie muffin guy. And it was like, all right, he's cool. Um, but then uh, in 2001, we had tournament. And tournament is this comedy sports event where comedy sports is from all over the country come together. And Comics for Chicago wanted to put more manpower behind promoting that event. And so I was hired um, basically on a, I think, I think I was still a contractor, but I was like a, you know, for the next six weeks, you're going to promote tournament. Mm. And so I started kind of trying on this PR marketing hat. And so after tournament, then I moved in to the PR marketing position. So now it's, it's like August of 2001. I've got this full-time job promoting this very popular show in Chicago. And it's like, wow, the world's our oyster, man. And one month later, September 11th happened. And (laughs) all tourism just vanished. Just people wouldn't leave their homes. They wouldn't go on trips. And, you know, comics was a very tourist-driven business, you know. Um, And so it really became, it was a really scary time. But uh, but to answer your question, from two thousand July of two thousand one until now, knock on uh, park uh, <laughs> knock on parquet floor. Uh, <laughs> I am uh, uh, I've been working as a professional in the theater. Um, now I was a professional in the theater before I came to Chicago in a much smaller market. Um, yeah. But that was the kind of professional where you live at the theater house with all the other actors in a kind of a kibbutz environment, and, and this is better. Fair, totally fair. Uh, when you were an actor, did you have like a favorite role that you ever did? No, I mean the role that I've always wanted to play is Henry Drummond in Inherit the Wind, and I and I hope to do that one day before I die. Even if that is thirty performances, I, I want to do that role. Um, I will tell you the role that kind of convinced me that I was not a good actor uh, was uh, um, I think it's I think the character's name is Joey, and it's in Pinter's The Homecoming, uh-huh. and. I had studied The Homecoming in college, of course not very well, because we weren't doing that show, so I was pretending to study that, but I was really studying the play we were doing. Um, but uh, The Homecoming, just I looked at it as this very dark, you know, Pinter uh, drama, very taut and, and sinister. You know, Pinter always talks about the, the weasel in the liquor cabinet is his plays, you know, this idea that, you know, there's this very nasty thing that's just hiding behind the veneer of, of polite society. And so I kind of brought all this angst to it. Well, what I didn't realize until literally opening night was the homecoming is hilarious. Like there is a lot of funny bits in the homecoming and I would break. And I would break in Pinter, which is like, it's, it's not Noel Coward. It's not Alan Akeborn. It's Pinter. You don't mess around, right? <laughs> so I was breaking. And so the other actors were getting pissed off at me. And they would, so my nickname became The Rock. They were like, Matt, The Rock, LOL. <laughs> Way to get through a whole scene without breaking, big guy. Uh, so, um, you know. I love it. Uh, so, in Chicago, what we have here is, you know, we've got comedy sports, annoyance, uh, Second City, and I.O. And those are, like, probably the, the big dogs. But then, in addition, we have the playground, we have CIC, we have PH, mm-hmm. and probably more that I'm not even thinking of at the time. Uh, how does... Being the CEO of one of these organizations, do you look at them primarily as competition? Do you look at them as resources? Or is everyone kind of getting along in the same playground? Or can you kind of speak to that? It's 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 not unlike Goodfellas. <laughs> you know, like there's certain people who are made people and everybody tries to be nice to each other. Um, I'll tell you this. 
Back in 2003, Angie McMahon and Kelly Leonard and Jimmy Binns and a couple other people, uh, and I, um, Robin, Robin Hammond, then Robin, previous name, um, was, uh, we, we were kind of putting together this thing. And uh, it was called the Chicago Comedy Association. And the whole idea was it, uh, and, and I would love to say that it was my idea, but I think there was about three of us who kind of hit on it at the same time in this particular League of Chicago Theaters conference that we were all at, Yeah, was why don't we all work together to try and brand this industry? That there's this cottage industry of improv in Chicago, and a lot of times we're kind of we're grousing at each other and, and kind of bad-talking each other's shows, and, and why not really say, hey, America, you, sh- you got to come here. Yeah. you got to come here and see what we're doing in the Chicago. So, you know, I think that created a really positive environment. And I think now, with, like, the stresses of, like, the economic downturn um, and the, the huge emergence of stand-up in this city, yeah. that the pie, in a way, is feeling like the slices are getting smaller. The whole pie is getting bigger, but the more insurgents that are moving in and developing, it starts to feel like, man, how am I going to make my nut this week? Because, you know... I'm paying these people, you know, and it's it's not just your performers, but it's your staff. And the staff is really, you know, those people who make their full-time living behind the scenes is the ones you really are trying to figure out, like, how am I going to make sure that I can pay these people? Um, because the, the great thing about our improvisers is that they're playing at multiple places. So, you know, the, the community as a whole is going to stay no matter what individual theaters are, are doing. You know, the community is, is uh, the fundamentals of the community are strong. It's, you worry about your staff, you worry about expansion, you worry a lot about things like, um, what if something goes wrong? You know, what if, what if an audience member trips and falls and what, you know, there, there's, there's obviously insurances, there's things we do about that, but when you're working behind the scenes, you have a whole different host of things you worry about than, I hope this show goes well, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah, at the end of the day, like that's all that the people see is the show. But if we, well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll I'll put it this way: if we did our jobs, the people go away talking about the experience. Yeah. And, but you know what we do, at least at Comic Sports, to us, customer service is really important. You know, um, and so in our in our bar area and in our and how we seat people and how we treat everybody, it's really important that we. Uh, um, create that experience front to back so it's not just about the show it's about they came to this place and this place made them feel a certain way yeah uh so as far as comedy sports is concerned i feel like amongst all the improv theaters here we tend to get more people who are not improvisers than anyone except for probably second city as far as uh, audience members yeah yeah i think we're much more uh we're much more open to the tourist group and um uh, so we're much more relevant to tourists, mm-hmm. and we also have families from the city. We also have a big suburban market that, yeah. uh, that's feeding us. Yep. And what is, well, like, what is it about comedy sports that kind of transcends to people? Because, I mean, still, even in Chicago, which is arguably the improv capital of the world, mm-hmm. at least in the English-speaking world that I know of, uh, there are still people that I meet that are like, what, what exactly is improv? And it's mm-hmm. like, how, how did... Do, do they sound like that? Them proud. That's they're real annoying. You when still they ask got me. it. You they, still got it. I'm I'm amazing. And uh, but I feel like, why do you think that comedy sports is able to reach out to people who aren't inundated with improvisation more so than like uh, a chemically bounce or someone like that? Well, you know, I 
I think it's apples and oranges, especially when you talk like a CIC, because you know from from what I'm familiar with is that they have shows that open and close, and you know they're they're doing shows, you know. Yeah. Whereas we have this one open run show; it's been running for 25 years, and so it's kind of a little bit of a different animal, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Second City kind of splits the difference in that they do reviews, but it's you know. The, the review is, is, I wouldn't say it's templatized, but, you know, the, the, the thing you're going to know about Second City is if you go on a given night, you're going to see a product that you're going to love, and it may be a different product than the people three months ago saw. Right. But it's going to fit, it's going to be a sketch comedy review. You're not going to show up and the Indigo Girls are going to come out on stage. You know what I mean? There's a That'd very be clear, real disappointing. Well, hey, I don't know, man. Depending on, on what you like. <laughs> Closer to fine. Oh. And, and the, uh, the title of the review would be Lilith Unfair. Ayo. Uh, but, you know. Trademark, trademark. <laughs> but for us, so we're kind of in that Blue Man Group space of we have this show that we're doing year in, year out, and we're trying to create um, fans who want to come back, who want to bring other people. Um, and I think that we've, we've driven this idea of this as an experience, and it's this experience of a, of a competition between these two teams. So as much as the show is the kind of thing that you'll, you'll understand, if yeah. you've seen it before, you'll get it. If you've never seen it before, you'll get it. You could, we've had people who have come in at the Saturday 8, and they've stayed and they've watched the Saturday 10. You know, or that they've come for, you know, like a Thursday show and they've come back on that Saturday because they're leaving town on Sunday, but they had to see us again. And they still have a great time because it's never the same show twice. It's improv. But we tell this story of competition, you know, when we when we train people on how to do this, we say, you know, it is a long form. It is a sketch review because we have this story that we tell over 90 minutes of these two teams who are competing for your applause, this referee, you know, that, that's a story that we're telling. Yeah. And we're driving that to a climax at the final score. And the team wins, and it's 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 a the audience feels identified with that team. Speak to the corporate training part of it. Uh, I remember when I started doing the corporate training, uh, that one one person referred to it as well. Improv for corporations is like the ropes course of today. Uh, yeah, we use the ropes course of your mind for a while. You know, it, it depends on how you're using it. And we started with the model that everybody else had, which was you know it's team building. You know, yeah. so we're in the team building space and there's there's certainly a lot of value there where, where we're kind of moving to is um, using improv as the as the training tool, but that we're not necessarily we're not teaching people how to be improvisers, but we're using interactive. You know, we're basically using improv the same way that other trainers use interactive learning experiences. Yeah. And you've got this certification, which I think is mm -hmm. fairly rare, at least in, in all the trainings I've, you know, been associated with. Like, not a lot of other people's take it that seriously necessarily. Well, in the improv community, no. I mean, it's there. There seems to be two camps in the improv community. There are the improvisers who figure out that training is a way to make some cash. Right. And so they're kind of dipping their toe in that. What what a lot of people don't know about is kind of the other side of the coin, which is there's a lot of training companies that watch an improv show or somebody took a second city class. And they go, oh, you know, I could use this in my training. And so then you have these very traditional button-down training organizations that are trying to use improv. And it always comes out a little, um, uh, a little clinical and a little sanitized and just, you know, kind of, kind of weak. 
Um, and, and so what we kind of represent, our, you know, our value proposition, as it will, uh, to use a, a really dead term, <laughs> but, but our value proposition is to say we're the best of both. We take training very seriously. We take instructional design very seriously. But we're bringing the values of an improv theater to this. We're not, we're not just using this in place of somebody else's, you know, where someone else would use an interactive exercise out of one of those books you see in the training section of a bookstore. Yeah. You know, we're uh, you know we're trying to create we're trying to share the ethos that's improv. Yeah, and what color is your parachute, Madawa? My, uh, yeah, I I'm all in. I have no parachute. <laughs> I am I am I'm all in. When I when I'm getting knocked off of this train, I, I fall to my death. Fair enough. I have I have never read that book. I just heard it once. Um, okay, worst job you ever had that wasn't in an artistic, uh, like that had nothing to do with theater. Or you know, what's funny is the worst. You, the worst, the two worst jobs I've ever had. Uh-huh. They've both been jobs that I didn't mind, except for the way I was treated. Oh, so that's uh, nice. I guess you could say. I mean, like, to a, to an extent. So, like, one of the jobs I had was landscaping, right? And and so I was in a landscaping company, and you know, working with <laughs> ex-cons and whoever, and it was it was kind of a, a a crazy environment. But what really made it awful was that the boss was just really mean and oh. and uh, kind of you know. I, I kind of like to think of myself as a smart person, and, and when that doesn't get a, uh, when when when, uh, when I'm made to feel like someone thinks I'm stupid, that uh, that really gets under my skin. So uh, that was that would be my worst. Although I was in a customer service position, you know, where I managed a restaurant, and that was that was worse because of of how I was treated there as well. But there was also a customer element and kind of catching people and keeping them from stealing and stuff. And, and that's the kind of thing where you go, ugh, this is not who I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. If I took away theater, like theater can't make money anymore in this world that I've just created, mm-hmm. uh, what would you do? Well, I think, I'd, I, you know, this training and consulting thing, I think, is, is kind of my trajectory is, you know, you know, there's this, this this idea in publicly held companies that, you know, there's a rule basically in publicly held companies that you must maximize value for the shareholder. You know, that's kind of like the rule. You have to maximize value for the shareholder. And if you don't do that, um, you're, um, it's, you're, you're breaking the law. But the problem is, is that you can maximize value for the shareholder by doing things that are completely awful. And they're only going to maximize value for the shareholder in the long, t- in the short term. Mm-hmm. And so what I would like to help, uh, kind of the mark I'd love to leave in the world is the understanding that, you know, we're a for-profit company here at Comic Sports. Yeah. We believe in capitalism. We believe in people working hard and making money. But you have to have a sense of the externalities. You have to have a sense of how you, when your organization or your business is making other people pay for things like, oh, now we have to clean up the air and clean up the water, or now we have to deal with childhood asthma. You know, when, you, when, when your company is creating costs that other people have to bear, you have to think about the long-term ecology of, of the planet. And not just the ecology like, you know, the Greenpeace ecology, but the idea that there's this interrelationship of all people. And if you make customers' lives worse, you're going to hurt the entire economy and you're going to, you know, you want, what I want to create is a sense of world ensemble consciousness. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have any heroes, um, like either improvisers or famous people or something like that that you kind of look up to? I do. I mean, um, I guess as, you know, on the improv level, I've, I, uh, I'll always kind of, uh, 
is it hold a candle? Hold a candle. Is that is that the Probably. is that the expression? Yes. Like when you're like this person's cool. Um, Mick Napier from The Annoyance uh, yeah. is uh, is is really brilliant on on several levels and taught me a great deal when I was in his trainings. Um, but also the longer I've known him, he's just a really smart guy all around. Um, and so I've always kind of thought of him and, and his ability to diagnose what's going on and to, and to give really helpful feedback to people. Um, I really like how he teaches and I like, you know, the kind of work that he does. Um, you know, Dave Gaudette's obviously my mentor who, who is the, you know, one of the major owners of comedy sports and, and kind of has, has made this thing what it is over the last 25 years. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there's a host of other people as well, all my teachers, um, you know, th of improv. On the business side, like, um, you know, uh, I, I've started to learn a little bit about CEOs, and I, and, and I don't know any of them personally, but um, Alan Mulally was the CEO of Ford and was uh, a vice president of Boeing before then or a division president. But basically, Alan Mulally is the reason why Ford didn't need a government bailout when everybody else did. Wow. And showed, showed an incredible amount of savvy. And I actually, I've started this Pinterest board of CEOs that you should know. <laughs> yeah. And, and not all of them are people that are, not all of them are people that everyone would agree are good people. Sure. But they've done certain things that go, ah, that's what I need to do. And, and what's really interesting to me is, you know, <laughs> we're not Ford. We're an independently owned and operated company. Uh, we're a small company. But the things that that he did, you know, business always comes down to some of the same things, you know. You've got to find a way to hook into people's brains and, and, and get them connected to your product on an emotional level. Uh, and then you've got to make sure your product costs less to make than it does to sell. Yeah. You know, and then you have to apply a real strategic vision over several years and, and don't forget execution. I mean, it's all the same, you know, whether you're GE and Jack Welsh or you're the corner Chinese restaurant, all of it matters. As someone who's the boss, uh, and I mean like the real boss, uh, as opposed to just like a director of people on a, that answers someone else, do you, uh, do you have like, I don't know, like Machiavelli's The Prince or something like that? Do you have like a, a guideline or, I'm trying to think of, you know, Art of War. Machiavelli's like, The Prince. Isn't that the right thing? Uh, it, it is if you're a jerk. Yeah. Well, I mean, but you know, like the, it's the idea of talking to the mafia boss, would you rather be feared or loved? That kind of thing of like, is there like something out there that you kind of... Well, I think that's, you know, uh, 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 this is what I would say. Um, uh, Viola Spolin's Improvisation for the Theater is, uh, I think it's its second chapter where it basically lays out the seven aspects of spontaneity. And one of the things they talk about is to remove this kind of teacher-student mentality, is to get away from the approval-disapproval trap of, you're an artist, you're trying to create, and I stand back and go, that was good, that was funny, oh no, that was not. And so I think what I try to do, what I aspire to do, is to apply improv's maxims to business. Mm. Now, obviously, something like that is, well, you know, you're the boss. There's times that you have to tell people they're not doing it right. Sure. But I think that there's a lot of room for the pendulum to swing in business where we're not treating people like students and children, and we're really partnering with them and releasing individuals excitement and you know and I think there's some stuff happening in the business world that speaks to that as well there's a guy named uh, I think it's Douglas McGregor who came out with Theory X Theory Y and basically Theory X is everybody's out to get me I've got to get
get these people to work and if they don't work I've got to get rid of them yeah and that's how a lot of you know a lot of people's lives in business you know well, you know show up that's sad <laughs> but theory why was people are basically good and want to do a good job they just need a structure and that's what I'm trying to create is a sense of structure where I set people up to succeed you know I think the and I'll, I'll tell you a place where I learned it was actually Ann Libra's Ann Libra's directing program at Second City mm-hmm. because there you know you were learning direct but what you were really learning is what do you do when you're 100% responsible for results you know and, and and we discovered the hard way a lot of times there were situations not necessarily in our control but we had to find a workaround you know and that really helped kind of prepare me for this role because when you're not the present CEO, there's always somebody you can throw the blame up to or over to, or if only I'd had this resource, if only I had done this. Yeah. And when you get into this chair, there's no, there's none of that. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter. Like you can certainly say, hey man, if there wasn't a huge economic downturn in 2009, our numbers would have looked different. Well, sure they would. If the weather <laughs> had been better in January and February, our numbers would have looked different. Well, sure it would have. But you know, either way, you've got to walk into a room and tell them if they, and tell someone if they still have a job or not. Tell someone, you know, what they're what they're going to need to do to get us to the next level. So, when you get that perspective on the business of, don't get hung up in what happened. Get hung up in what's next. You know, that's a different perspective. Fifteen-year-old kid comes up to you and says, "I want to do what you do. I want to be the CEO of a theater. I want to run. You know, what I, I want to be. I want to be what you are." What advice do you give them? I'm so cynical because I would think they're lying. <laughs> you know, I, and I'll, I'll tell it's you what. has got to be at least one out there. Well, but that's the thing is that, you know, um, I remember early on one of the things Mick said uh, when I was in annoyance classes. He said a lot of people come up to me and they say, how can I get on the stage of the annoyance? And his thought always was the way to get on the stage of the annoyance is not to be the guy who comes up and goes, how do I get on stage of the annoyance? You know, you work your way in. You don't talk your way in. And I think sometimes I run into people who are like, they're all fired and they want ideas and they want opinions and then they don't do anything. And uh, there's this idea out there of don't talk out your passion. Like they tell writers, like don't talk about your writing, write it down first. Because talking it out expends the same creative energy that you would have put into the product. Yeah. So I used to be the guy... I would give so much advice. I mean, and people didn't even want it, but I would find a way to trick them into asking for it so I could tell them, you know, here's all my thoughts on improv. Here's all my thoughts on running a business. Here's all my thoughts. It really, there's so much that people have to discover for themselves. And if they don't have the passion to read the books and go off on their own and apply the things, that there's only there, there's only so much time you, you should give to somebody who goes, how do I do what you do? It's like, frankly... Ten years ago, I didn't go. I'm going to run comedy sports. Sure. I went. I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live or whatever. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's funny. Like to think of those guys every week. They do another sketch review. It's like I just can't imagine. Like that's my life. Like every week, here's my new scene that I'm going to be in, and like it just it just seems so boring. You know. Oh, you said a different thing this week. You know. Whereas. <laughs> Like me, I get to worry about HR one minute and strategy the next and execution the next and loss prevention and marketing and product development. And I I get to bounce around and and play with all the different dials, you know, and and it's awesome. Nice. I think to some degree being a CEO is improv at its heart because it's it's about what's going to happen right now, what's going to happen next, and, and can I be ready for it and not like, you know, I don't have two days in a row that are the same, same at all. 
Yeah. My day to, there, there is no such thing as my day to day. My day to day is whatever has to happen right then. Nice. You know, and, and yeah, that's that to me, that's improvising. So that 15 year old kid would just be out of luck. <laughs> no, I would say something. <laughs> you know what I would say is actually, this is probably what I'd pull on him. I'd be like, what have you done so far? Mm. You know, because you, I also, and I, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have given this answer before, but for me, it's like you're running the kid who's like, you know, I want to do what you do. Yeah, but yesterday he wanted to be a rock star, and the day before that he wanted to be a you know an airplane pilot. And it's like, I, there's part of me that doesn't want to waste my time having a conversation with someone who wants to be the guy who seems interested. I'll I'll have a conversation with the guy who wants to do it, but the guy who wants to seem interested in doing it for some reason. Yeah, I'm I'm past that. Fair. Uh, anything you want to plug? Obviously, come to the Comedy Sports Theater in Chicago. We have shows there all the time. Yeah. Uh, anything like? Do you have I don't know. Videos on YouTube or something, blog? You know, we're moving in that space. I would say, um, you know, like us on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. But I also think, um, I think one of the best kept secrets about Comics Sports Chicago is our training center. And yeah. that if people want to be an improviser, you should take, you should take IO, you should take Second City, you should take Annoyance. Um, you know, I believe in all that stuff. I think our value proposition is how do you make an audience laugh and how do you survive when they don't? Um, one of the things I, I tell students uh, in my more pretentious moments, is um, uh, uh, when you start in comedy, laughs are like oxygen, and improv training is about learning how to hold your breath. Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea it's is if people get up on stage and they go, nobody's laughing, and then they crap their pants and do some of the worst, most pandering improvisation ever, and all they needed to do was assume they were awesome, take their time, and bring that audience to them. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it is an act of intention. It's not an act of, oh, God, what do we do? What do we do? Uh, you know, you don't – fire sale is not a good metaphor for improv. You know, that you want the people on stage improv to, uh, who are improvising to really improvise with confidence and joy and not with this tentative like, oh, my God, I'm, on a, I'm a hamster on a wheel. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Matt Owell, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks. I, I hope you enjoyed all the door slamming uh, that I provided. Uh, well, that wasn't you. To be fair. Oh, well, all right, if you're going to say that. Well, I guess you're the same. That was, uh, that was Greg Russell. Sales, sales director. Uh, Slamming my door. Yep, I love it. Thank you, Matt Well, Living the dream. Big thank you to Phil Ranton, the Comedy Podcast Network. Original artwork by Tom Burns. Original music by Diana Lawrence. Email livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com or look us at facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast. Take a minute to rate the show on iTunes. Leaving a comment helps out a lot. Tune in next week. We've got owner and talent of the four-day weekend theater in Fort Worth, Texas, Dave Wilk. Thanks for listening. My name is Rich Baker, and this is Living the Dream. <laughs>